The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Happy Halloween. This is uh, Hallow's Eve. Yeah, this is something probably traditional Buddhists might like. One of the things the Buddha said way back when was that uh, just as the footstep of an elephant, the footprint of an elephant is the greatest footprint of all, right, because it's big, so the reflection on death is the best reflection of all. Because it's, it's humbling, you know, we all have a very particular disease, which we could call self-importance. <laughs> we take life, this life in particular, really, you know, it's important. It's about me, so it's important. And as we reflect on death, when we just let that truth in, that death happens to all of us, we don't know when, we don't know how, but we do know it will happen. It's not that it's like um, that there's some meaning there, but what it does is it, it breaks up the established meaning in the mind, which is somehow this mostly unconscious sense that, you know, we're always going to be around like this, that things aren't going to change. It's the most, you know, probably the biggest tragedy and the most ironic thing that in this world that is constantly changing, where unpredictable things are happening all the time, there's this arrogant sense that uh, like nothing out of the ordinary is going to change that it will be this way for a while. I mean, intellectually, of course, we know that isn't the case, but we live as if we can count on things being the same. So I've been um, covering some of the teachings of Ajahn Chah, this wonderful Thai meditation master from the last century, using uh, a book where they've uh, transcribed a lot of his talks from where he taught in Northeast Thailand called Food for the Heart. And we're looking at chapter four, which is called Making the Heart Good. And in this chapter, Ajahn Chah um, talks about a, a talk the Buddha gave, a very famous talk. It's now one of the uh, handful of Buddhist holidays is based on the day the Buddha gave this talk to evidently 1,250 awakened disciples of, of his. 90, or what is it, nine months after his own insight, his own awakening, and he already had a lot of disciples that had the same awakening that he had. And uh, these are other, mostly other ascetics, uh, spiritual seekers, who had developed a lot of insight already and just needed a kind of a little pointing out, and they had the same insight. And so at that talk, the Buddha summed up his teachings. And he said, cease to do evil, or another way you could translate that, refraining from all wrongdoing, cultivate that which is good, purify the heart. This is the way of the awakened ones, or this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So really a simple summary. Abandon what's unskillful, cultivate what's unskillful, and purify your mind. So if anybody asks, 
what your life is about, you can just, now you got a pat answer. Well, I'm abandoning what's unskillful, I'm cultivating what's skillful, and I'm developing the mind. I'm developing the quality of clarity and ease in the mind so I can see better what's unskillful and should be abandoned and what's skillful and should be cultivated. Because, you know, a lot of our abandoning unskillful and cultivating skillful is dependent on how balanced the mind is. Because we can justify all kinds of unskillful things because our mind's out of balance. And it makes sense to invade other countries, you know, or it makes sense to steal. Well, they deserve it, you know. I mean, all kinds of negative behaviors we've engaged in made sense when the mind was out of balance. So we need all three. Abandon what's unskillful, cultivate the good, and purify the mind. Develop this profound sensitivity so that we can discern what's skillful and unskillful. That's it. And uh, this talk, uh, a number of the talks in this book that were transcribed, made up the book then, were talks that uh, Ajahn Chah gave to lay people. Later in his life, um, in this obscure monastery in Northeast Thailand, he became quite famous, quite well known in Thailand and even outside of Thailand. And uh, after a while, even daily busloads or vanfuls of lay people would come. And this is part of the Thai culture where it's like on a holiday, for example, or when you have a day off, you gather your friends, or you gather your extended family, pile into the car or whatever, and you go to the local monastery and you do what's called a, called making merit. You know, you, you show up, maybe you, you don't eat past noon that day, um, you might do some study, you might do some meditation, but generally you'd support the monastery, the monks and the nuns in some way. Bring them a meal, um, work on one of the buildings, uh, help them build uh, platforms or huts for their practice where they stay out in the forest or things like that. And so this was a regular occurrence at the monastery where Ajahn Chah was because he was so well known. And in a, in a loving but uh, kind of pointed way, he'd criticize them. Because sometimes, you know, it was just in, in the Thai culture, it was just like what you do. You know, it's like some of us, the equivalent might be, well, we feel obliged when we go to the grocery store at Christmas time to put money in the Salvation Army bucket. It's just what we do. You know, we don't really think so much about it. We just do that or we fund drive at our office, you know, where you contribute to the United Way or to this or to that. You just do it. It's just part of the culture to do these things. And so he, in some ways, he'd, in pointed ways, he'd criticize the people coming about being really interested in the second part of that instruction, cultivate what's good, like doing generosity or what's called, as I mentioned, making merit, sort of setting in motion good things, that people want to rush to this, although they're not so interested in the first one, the abandoning of what's not wholesome taking a look at our life and really seeing, like, oh, that doesn't feel quite right. Maybe maybe there's something I need to look at here. Maybe there's something I need to abandon here, clean up here. This we're not so interested in often. And he gives a couple examples or similes of this. He says, it's like somebody who has a really dirty cloth, lots of, lots of dirt and lots of stains, and they want to make it beautiful so they dye it. 
and they never bothered to clean it first. You know, they're just trying to dye it in a really nice color, and of course it doesn't turn out so well. Another example, he says something like, thousands of people might put their hand in a hole to get something at the bottom of the hole, and each time the hole's so deep they don't quite reach what they're trying to get. And they pull their hand out and they complain, you know, that the hole is too deep. They can't get what they want. Never once do they think, never once does it occur to them that their arm's too short. You know, it's that how we see things. Like uh, we're doing our best to be a good person, to give, to be generous, to sort of follow the rules. And, you know, life doesn't work very well for us, even though we think we're so good. You know, why is, why is this happening to me? It's not fair. And it never occurs to us what we haven't abandoned. You know, what kind of negativity, what sort of greed, what sort of aversion, what habits of denial and disconnection we feel very okay about maintaining, cultivating, living with. And then the last simile he gives is you know, building a house without worrying about the foundation. You know, you might build a really pretty house, but if you don't build a foundation, it's not going to be very stable. It's not going to hold up for long. And this is this example of neglecting, which is really our primary responsibility, to abandon what's unskillful. And in a way, it's the engine of awakening. You know, we don't really go anywhere unless we begin to take responsibility for what's not wholesome, what's not skillful in our life. In fact, we could say that being oblivious to the patterns in the mind, the habits of the mind that are heavy, that are negative, negative in the sense that they're heavy, that they cause stress, that they distort, disturb, agitate the mind. Not being aware and not even being interested is really the definition of ignorance. Or just assuming that there isn't anything to abandon, you know, that there isn't anything to let go of. That's really ignorance. Because it's not that we may, it's not that we would necessarily think that the, I don't have any problems, but we associate the problems we're having with, like we blame outside things. It never occurs to us that the mind is involved in something that should be put down. And this isn't about being negative or uh, having a lot of self-hatred. It's just the opposite. It's it really comes from a sense of self-respect and. Uh, confidence in the goodness of the heart. You know, and, it, and of course, it's always like this in spiritual life, this chicken and egg problem. <laughs> you know, because it's relatively, it's relatively difficult to see what needs to be abandoned when our mind has a lot of negativity. You know, when we're constantly caught up in greed, constantly caught up in a sense of neediness and aversion and impatience and anger and self-righteousness and feelings of betrayal and discontentment and denial and disconnection and distraction. When we're constantly caught up in those different kind of mental patterns, 
then the next one of those negative patterns, it doesn't stand up. We don't even notice it as being unwholesome because it's like the rest. But if you go spend a weekend with really uh, wise friends and, you know, really good company where people aren't gossiping and uh, taking care of each other in really nice, simple, wholesome ways and you do wholesome activities, then when you re-enter and you turn the news on (laughs) or have a conversation at work where people are gossiping or complaining or blaming, it really stands out as you get involved in that activity. It's like black and white. The, the contrast is so distinct, we realize, oh, oh, this is not the kind of mind I want to be cultivating. This is not the sort of habits I want to be investing in. No way. I mean, taking responsibility in this way means we have a sense that what we do with the mind is going to determine what the mind's likely to do down the road. What we're investing in leads to what we experience down the road. As it's often said in the Buddhist tradition, do you want to know about the past? Well, whatever this is that's arising right now for you, this has come out of the past. Where else would it have come from? This experience, these circumstances. You want to know about the future? Notice how you're relating to the present. So the present moment arises out of the past. How we relate to the present moment is setting in motion the future. So if we're relating to the present moment with blame, with aversion, with fear, any kind of negativity, greed, disconnection, denial, then that's what we're setting in motion for the future. If we relate to the present moment with forgiveness, with acceptance, with interest, alertness, presence. Well, that's what we're setting in motion for the future. This uh, talk the Buddha gave way back when, it continues a couple more stanzas here. A renunciate does not oppress anyone. Right? Somebody interested in a spiritual life doesn't cause harm, you could say. And then the Buddha says, patient endurance is the ultimate asceticism. This is a really interesting line because back then, asceticism was a big deal in northern India. And there were all sorts of ascetic practices. And it was sort of, in some ways, considered the the way to be spiritual. You know, you fast, you don't wear much clothes, you don't really have a home, you wander about, you don't have any wealth, you just get fed from lay people who are willing to feed you. And that you know, would get you a lot of respect in that culture. And the Buddha really got into that for a while in the first several years of his spiritual practice, his formal spiritual practice. He talks about how he went to the nth degree where although other people might have matched his asceticism, nobody practiced stronger asceticism than him. So in terms of fasting and letting go of these things. And he, they, he gave that up. He saw it as a dead end, like asceticism for its own end wasn't a, a useful path. It just makes the body weak. You know, when the body's weak, then the mind's weak. It's not easy to see clearly when you're starving your body, for example, when you're out in the elements and not getting enough shelter. So the Buddha then changed how he practiced. He accepted food, good food, 
and he practiced in a, a more balanced way. It's not that he got extravagant, but he wasn't afraid of sense pleasures. He decided being afraid of sense pleasures doesn't really lead to deep insight, to awakening. So in this next line, he says, patient endurance is the ultimate asceticism. So this is a response to the culture at the time where letting go of the world, like the world is bad, sex is bad, money is bad, food is bad, you know, having responsibilities is bad. He says, well, if you really want to be an ascetic, practice being patient with your life as it is. You know, so you have a partner. Well, maybe practice being patient with that partner. You have a body. Maybe practice being patient with your body. You live in a community. Maybe practice being patient with your community. Patience first, and then let our response come from a sense of patience, a willingness to bear, to open to how it is, instead of a reactive, no, it can't be this way. Well, yeah, it is this way. So what should I do about that? So this is, you can see, this really is an ascetic practice. It's a challenge to be patient with our life. It feels so much easier to be negative, to be reactive or averse, or want things to be other than they are. <clears throat> this patience he's talking about is that moment of being open. Because right now it is this way. I am married to this person. This person is my partner. This is the community I live in. You know, where we have a marriage amendment to decide about, you know, this is the world we live in. Instead of hating the world we live in, we have to sort of sit down right in the middle of the world we live in. Oh, this is the world I live in, where things like this are being done, where the, there are these prejudices and these injustices and these ignorance in my mind and other people's minds. Oh. To be patient with that means to be open to that. And he goes on, he says, profound liberation, or you might say the unshakable release of the heart, say the Buddhas, is the supreme goal. So even in this mess, it's possible to be free. Not free because we've left it behind, life is misery, it's a mess. That's kind of the instinct of ascetic practices, like the world's messy, get me out of here. You know, to some place where I don't need anything. I don't need any of you. I don't need my body. I don't listen to what my body needs. I'm going to be in this sort of exalted state away from all sort of the messiness of the world. But the freedom we're really looking for, because that freedom is quite dependent. You know, it's like turn things into, it's a dualistic kind of freedom. Where the messiness of the world, that's hell, and not that is heaven. You know, getting away from that. And so then it's like, I've got to get rid of the messiness. Well, so much of our wars and so much of our injustice and so much of our closing our heart off to other people, it's, it precisely comes from that feeling of like, I feel that even in my relationship with my wife. You know, when she's having a difficult time for whatever reason and it's like too much for me, it's like, the way I protect myself is, you know, mostly unconsciously, I, I want to close myself off, you know, because I don't want to be contaminated by her suffering. And it doesn't mean, you know, on the surface I know better than to say anything like that out loud. 
But you know, it's you know how we do that, where we're somehow protecting ourselves, isolating ourselves, distancing ourselves in different ways. We might even feel that in terms of I feel that way sometimes. It's just in terms of the policies of the United States, like how we're handling what's going on in the Middle East and the drone strikes and the policies around um, secrecy and the policies around uh, invasion of privacy and indefinite detentions and unknown detentions and torture and all these things that are really being done in terms of democracy and living, kind of uh, having a free society. And uh, it just seems so easy for me to say, well, that's their problem. You know, that's their karma. They're making these choices. Instead of sitting right in the middle of it, like, oh yeah, I live in this country. I'm part of this. I'm part of this ignorance. Can Can I really let that in? Let my heart let that in. I'm part of the causes for real suffering in the world. You know, and this is true both just politically, but it's just, you know, the choices we make in terms of the food we eat, the things we buy. You know, every time we buy something, it's wrapped in all this plastic and this and that. We're all contributing to all of the problems in the world. And hopefully we're also contributing to some of the solutions and some of the going beyond of the problems of the world. But to be willing to embody, to inhabit the world we live in, that's really our practice. That's the liberation. The unshakable release of the heart is about being right here in the middle of our lives, being free right here. We want to hold that as a possibility. I'm not saying we realize that now, that we really realize that freedom now, but we want to aspire to freedom in the messiness of having an aging body, in the messiness of trying to have relationships with other human beings and not liking all of their habits and they're not liking all of our habits and yet, you know, still wanting to be connected with other human beings and the inevitable difficulty of that, you know? Can't live with them, can't live without them. That's sort of our predicament. And the Buddha ends with this last paragraph. He says, not insulting, not harming, cultivating restraint with respect for the training, right? Respect for the training of non-harming. Modesty in eating, contentment with one's dwelling place, devotion to mindful intent. We may not always be mindful, but we can, in a sense, hold a torch up for mindfulness. Like, where or when would mindfulness be inappropriate in your life? Being present in that relaxed and clear way, when would that be harmful or inappropriate? It is, in a sense, human common sense. It's sort of the ultimate common sense to value that clear, wise presence at all times. Even when we're doing something naughty or wrong, we would it would be best to be clear, mindfully aware. Oh, yeah. This is what it feels like to be doing this thing that I'm doing. Acting in the way that I'm acting, thinking in the way that I'm thinking. A little later in this uh, chapter, Ajahn Chah points out this, you know, this relevant truth. Let me just read a little bit here. 
So again, the chapter is about making the heart good and about really investing in this first instruction. So the Buddha, in this instruction, remember, he says, all of the Buddhas, and you know, in Buddhist cosmology, we're talking about a long, long time. One image is, I mean, just in terms of the time scale, you know, they talk about eons, like incalculable numbers of cycles of big bangs, you know, the expansion of the universe, and then the contraction. So we're not talking about, you know, geologic time on Earth. You know, the way they imagine cosmology, it's like way, 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 way beyond. One image is um, if a crow or a bird would fly by a mountaintop, seven miles wide, seven miles high, solid granite, right? And once every hundred years, a bird would fly by, and as it was flying by, it would drag a, a feather along the top as long as it would take for that to erode, that seven-mile-wide, seven-mile-high mountain of granite to erode with the brushing of a feather once every hundred years, that might be like one eon. You know? And then an incalculable, incalculable number of those. So a long time this has been going on. So the Buddha's talking about the, you know, we're cycling through, we've been involved in the opposite of abandoning what's unwholesome and cultivating the good and purifying the mind. We've been avoiding this work for a long time. So he's suggesting that, you know, that we take this up. And he's, and he's making, you know, kind of, in a humorous way, making fun of the people who are thinking that they could just take a bus to the monastery and give some money, bring some fruit, something like that, and somehow they're going to sort of change the way things are. And he says, yeah, sure, it's great to come and contribute money, food, you know, we'll build another meditation hall for the monks and nuns and lay people, or we'll build huts for the monks and nuns to practice at. But the best thing to do is work with your own mind. And, he, and in talking to him about how we avoid this, he says, going on these merit-making tours is like building a house without preparing the area beforehand. It won't be long before the house collapses, right? The foundation was no good. You have to try again a different way. You have to look into yourself at the faults in your actions, speech, and thoughts. Where else are you going to practice? People get lost. They want to go and practice Dharma where it's really peaceful in the forest or at Wapa Pong. Is Wapa Pong, that's the name of his monastery, peaceful? No, it's not really peaceful. Where is it really peaceful? Is in your own home, right? In our own heart is the only place it can be peaceful. He goes on at another point and he says, you know, people think, you know, in terms of wrong action, people think, well, as long as nobody sees me. And just notice, I notice this, like when I'm going to, do something wrong, I check, you know. And he says, he makes a joke, he says, it's as if it doesn't matter that we see ourselves doing what's wrong. I mean, what would it matter if nobody else sees us? We see that we're doing something inappropriate. And clearly we know it's inappropriate because we don't want anybody else to see us. Think about all the things we've done in a life that we really don't want other people to know about. Like, what is it that you wouldn't be willing to say tonight to this group? 
I can think of a couple things. <laughs> and I'm sure most of us can. And then that sort of begs the question, well, I know about that thing I did. How does that feel? What arises for me when I remember that I'm either doing this or I did that? Right? There should be, there probably is an appropriate feeling of regret, like an ache in the heart. Like, ooh, that doesn't feel good that I did that. Maybe there's a different way. Not that we have to get involved in a lot of self-hatred, because that's not going to feel good to do either, like to judge ourselves or to hate ourselves, but to recognize what's unskillful as unskillful. It's really a powerful turning point. And it really, like I mentioned at the beginning, it, it comes out of a, uh, a sense of well-being and a sense of confidence in the heart, the essential goodness of the heart. Another one of those famous, often repeated statements from the Buddha, almost as repeated as the statement, you know, all the teachings of the Buddha come down to abandoning, restraining from what's unwholesome, cultivating the good, purifying the mind. So equally well known is the statement, the mind is radiant and pure. It is only covered over by visiting defilements, visiting negative habits, you could say. So the mind is essentially, naturally, inherently radiant and pure, already free. But this inherent beauty, freedom, purity is covered over, is obscured by the visiting habits of mind, the negative habits of greed, of negativity, of aversion and fear and hatred and delusion, you know, just not feeling it's relevant to be present, feeling it's safer to be disconnected, to be lost in thought or in denial or, you know, all the different ways we cut ourselves off from the moment. So, taking responsibility for the habits of mind, where we start getting interested just in listening and respecting, like, oh, it's useful to know when the heart is off. It's useful to pay attention. There's one more paragraph I wanted to read here. Ajahn Chah says, Having cleared away impurities, the mind is free of worries, peaceful, kind, and virtuous. When the mind is radiant and has given up evil, unskillful acts, there is always ease. The serene and peaceful mind is the true epitome of human achievement. Normally, we think, if I want something really good, really beautiful, I have to go get it. But we don't realize that that attitude is already contaminating the mind. The thought that I'm in a bad place and I have to get to a good place, it's, it's like this... Um, sense of rejection of what is and this craving, this desiring for what we imagine would be better. So instead of that, we just notice how it is. Now the interesting thing about opening to the present moment is we may open, like sometimes, you know, we're really in a bad place, in a funk, you know, just have a lot of despondency, a lot of negativity, 
a lot of irritation, maybe we're just bored. And then somebody tells you, well, can you open to that? And you think, well, God, it's so negative. It's so unwholesome. Why would I want to open to it? But the opening isn't negative. The willingness of the heart to, really, the courageousness, the fearlessness of the heart to open, to see it honestly, clearly, oh, it's like this, that's quite beautiful. It's quite wholesome. So this is how we transform the moment. Nobody nobody would say, anybody who's practiced would never say, you know, that that our states of mind, our states of heart, aren't at times really negative or unwholesome or a pain to be around, you know, because it's obviously the case. But in any moment, we can relate to that negativity in a very wise, loving, and beautiful way. And that's so much easier. Like, if we're going to transform our life, and we have two options, one option is to come somehow completely make our life different than it is. Right? That's one option. The other option is to completely accept our life as it is with wisdom and compassion. What do you think is easier? You see, there's absolutely nothing that can ever get in the way of completely accepting our life as it is with wisdom and compassion. That transformation is always available. Who could stop us from doing that? The only thing that could stop us from doing that is somehow thinking it's not possible or not relevant in some way or just not being aware of it as a possibility. And the idea that somehow, like this life isn't good, that somehow I, I mean it's such an arrogant, foolish notion that I can make my life different than this. You know, we live in this somewhat frictionless universe. So I've got this personality. I didn't ask for this personality. I have this body. I also didn't ask for this body. Is there anybody here in the room that, you know, when you went through the cosmic buffet line, you know, and you selected all of the elements of your personality, your different mental habits, your emotional habits, your genetic code, so that you got what you wanted? No, that's not how it happens. The personality, the culture we were brought up in, the genetic code, all of those things, it's part of a natural interdependent unfolding. And we know, at least intellectually, that nobody's in charge of this, right? Nobody's putting this all together in this particular way. It's just a natural unfolding of causes and conditions. So this idea that somehow now we can step out of this natural interdependent unfolding recognizes it like somehow in the great scheme of things this is wrong this unfolding is wrong and I'm going to make it different in fact it's exactly that attitude that makes this unfolding so painful it's exactly the idea of thinking that our life as it is is essentially wrong that makes that kind of justifies hatred and justifies craving which really hurts. And this is what hurts our heart. That opening to the moment with acceptance, with love and compassion, it really transforms the moment and it allows for a very powerful response. So it's not about being passive, like accepting it and then I'm never going to do anything. I'm just going to sit there, which, by the way, sitting there is doing something too. 
So, but what that compassion and wisdom does is it frees us up to do things, to respond in beautiful ways, creative ways. So it's like that says in the Bible, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else will be added unto you. That's a very Buddhist statement that when you practice a moment of being radically present with wisdom and compassion, abandoning everything else and just instead acknowledging, oh, this is how it is, then all of a sudden it's easy to make different choices in our lives. But to make, try to make different choices because we hate the way our life is doesn't really work. You know, and we're the living proof. <laughs> How many times have we tried to make our life perfect because we didn't like the way that it was? And we always seem to end up with a lot of the same thing. Because the attitude of not liking our life is the one factor that's always the same. It's the aversion that's making things always be the same, or the greed that's making things always be the same, which we could sum up by saying, tight. Things are tight, they're constricted, they're heavy. Because we believe in hatred, aversion, and we believe in craving as means to something good. So the question is, does craving and aversion lead to something good, or does it just lead to tightness? and the heart being burdened. And then if that's true, then what's the alternative to craving and aversion? So remember, when you hear the instruction from the Buddha and now from Ajahn Chah that we need to refrain from unwholesome acts, abandon what's unskillful, we don't want to turn it into more craving and aversion. The way we abandon what's unwholesome is we recognize, oh, it's like this now. Because what, the way we abandon it is we acknowledge with wisdom and compassion, it's like this now. In that moment, immediately we've abandoned what's unwholesome. As he says in this chapter, in this talk he gave to these busload of lay people, you know, we've already done what needs to be done. It's one of the last lines, maybe I'll read that paragraph. Now, everybody said, well, I should fill in a little bit here. He says, uh, you know, one thing you can cultivate to sort of allow for this turning where we are meeting the moment with mindfulness, you know, to break the cycle. He says you should use the mantra, so, you know, S-O, so. So the mind's complaining, oh, God, nothing ever good happens to me. Or my boss is giving me such a hard time. She should be fired and, instead of me. And. And then you notice what your mind is doing, and you just say, so, so. Like, neither good nor bad. So, it's that. That's how it is. And then he goes on, he says, at the end of this, Now, if everybody said so more often, and applied themselves to training like this, clinging would d diminish. People would not be so stuck on love and hate, attachment, craving, so he's using love in this more simplistic, superficial way. Love as attachment or craving and hate or aversion. <clears throat> Clinging would diminish. People would not be so stuck on love and hate. They would not cling to things. They would put their trust in the truth, not with other things. 
just to know this much is enough. What else do you need to know? Right? Just to turn in this way, where we're not getting caught in love and hate, but instead we're doing this simple but very beautiful, very wholesome thing. Oh, it's like this. It's just this. And that's such a powerful act of compassion to be able to acknowledge that this mind, this body, is like this mouth. That fearlessness about showing up. That's what we do to people when they're dying or in difficult straits. We show up. We're willing to be close. We don't want them. I mean, it's not that we need to fix them. If, we, if there's something we can do, of course, we'll do it. But sometimes there's nothing we can do about other people's suffering. And sometimes there's nothing we can do about our own difficult life situation. But we can always show up with wisdom and compassion. There's never a time we can't show up with wisdom and compassion. Oh, or so. So, it's like this now. But can this be okay? So I'll leave it here. Next week we'll go to Chapter 5 if you're reading along. But we have about 10 or 13 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some people. Any questions you might have about the talk tonight? Or any comments from your own life that seem relevant that you'd like to bring up for the group? What comes to mind? Yeah, July. Um, something really special in my life that I've with depression. And um, I think that's something that Yeah, I mean, we all have people, we're all proximate to suffering, our own and other people's suffering at different times. And how do we stay close, stay alive, enlivened by life, as opposed to closing down? And we're only, you know, fundamentally, we're responsible for our own response. And we have to be very honest with ourselves how aversion arises around other people, what we imagine is other people's suffering. And we have, that's the place for work. Because we can't be compassionate unless we're willing to be relaxed with the way that it is. It doesn't mean we like that other people are suffering or that we like that we're suffering or that we have stress. But that's how it is now. So how do we learn how to be close in the messy worlds we live in? The people who all of us are cycling in and out of difficult times where we get in negative space spaces for periods of time, difficult spaces for periods of time. And the deep habit of the mind is to assume that suffering is bad. But we have to move beyond this conception of things in terms of good and bad. And the opposite, or the alternative rather, is, well, it's just the way that it is. So this person is either suffering or not suffering. But what I really know is this is how it is for me being around this person. So not even like this is how it is for that person. But what I can know is this is how it is for me being around this person. So how can I work with my own mind? Because 
It's only in our own mind that there is this possibility of opening with compassion and wisdom. And that's our job is to model how to do that. And that's what's useful for everybody around us. If we can model being an engaged, alive, awake, loving, and wise human being, that's what's best for everybody else. And, and, and lo and behold, when we're in that place, when it is appropriate to say something or do something, we tend to be more creative because we're not coming out of a negative space where, not that we'd ever say this too long, but often I'll notice it's like we're impatient with people suffering, which just to put it in more provocative terms, I hate your suffering. And that, you know, then when we put it in those terms, we realize, oh, that's, that's not helpful. And that's often where we are with the difficulty that we face in life, is that we really hate it. We really don't, we don't want it to be this way. You know, I don't want this world to be this way. But that's not helping this world. And so much of what makes this world such a difficult uh, place is people not liking it, so they disengage in different ways. And in order to disengage, I need to have everything I need to be safe first. So then we get greedy. You know, I'm going to get my own little island with, you know, my own electrical system and, you know, my own food supply and, and you know, that doesn't work. <laughs> Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, say your name. My name is Greg. Right. So if that's the case, then the instruction would be uh, to develop the confidence to be honest with the aversion that we're feeling toward life or toward this experience right now. So there's an integrity about acknowledging. Now, the, the amazing thing about that, because it sounds like, well, not only are you having a miserable life, but now the person's asking you, to be very clear and honest that you're having a miserable life. Now, how does that help? I mean, I see that it's sort of like, well, how does that help? But the interesting thing is to really, to honestly open to the life that is being lived, that we're living right now, the way that it is for us. But what if you can't? No, but you have to practice. But let me just finish. So if you practice doing that, there's something that, there's something unexpected that happens. Because as I hear that instruction and then practice opening to the life that I'm living, as difficult as it is at times, and actually what's more challenging is to open to it when it's really beautiful. So you think it's hard to open when it's difficult. It's also hard to open to life when it's really beautiful and good. But if I practice, I start to realize something. I realize this quality of the mind or heart not quite right to call it a quality. You could say the nature of the heart or mind itself that is capable of a complete, uninhibited opening. So far, 
in our ordinary lives, it goes on undiscovered. It's only when we're interested, when we get the instruction and we become interested in opening to what seems uh, inappropriate to open to, like that difficult situation you described with your dad. And it's so common with older people, you know, where it just says, well, I don't want that. But one of the things that can happen when exactly the thing we don't want to happen happens is we can realize the heart, the nature of the heart, the nature of the mind that's not afraid to be completely awake in that situation. So you could call this God, you can call this Buddha nature, you can call it whatever you want, but what I'm suggesting is we live our life unaware of that freedom. And we need really beautiful and really difficult experiences to uncover, let's call it a potential. Or in Buddhism we call it the unconditioned. The happiness that's not about conditions. The freedom that's not about the particular conditions of our life, whether they're really great or neutral or really bad. But there's only one way to reveal that or to discover that which is to open completely to life as it actually is. Well, if he can't, then he can't. But the question is, what can we do to move in that direction? That's really the question. I mean, you're saying, theoretically, let's say somebody can't. Clearly, there are people who, if they hear this instruction, they're so overwhelmed by the pain in their life that they can't follow through. But the real question is, are you so overwhelmed by the pain in your life that you can't get interested in this instruction and begin to play with it and work with it? Yeah, I think that's probably sometimes the case in my life too, but not always the case. So when we have enough ease and enough pleasant circumstances, then we can. I mean, generally, you don't get a lot of people who are overwhelmed by. Uh, poverty or overwhelmed by in war zones getting interested in this practice because they're they're basically living as an animal just trying to survive and the instincts of survival take over this practice requires a more reflective attitude and we can only do that when situations are in our life our life circumstances balanced enough safe enough and maybe that's the point you're making and I can Yeah. Well, from a Buddhist point of view, you know, or from this practice point of view, uh, as long as we're capable of practicing, then their life has value, right? Because we can still discover how the heart is capable of opening to life no matter the conditions. Capable of being generous and loving no matter the conditions. And that process of discovery has value. But if he doesn't have faith in that process, he may never start. That's right. And then he basically, and at least for periods of time, is living in a hell realm. And clearly, we've all lived in hell realms. And some people live in a hell realm most of their life. And so I, I totally agree. And it's, it should break our hearts that that's the case. Time for just one more comment. Yeah, Lewis. 
from my own experience, it seems to me that there are times when I consciously or unconsciously have given myself permission to suffer over my suffering. <laughs> and in the times that I'm able to remove that other layer, it doesn't mean that everything is fixed, but I feel like I have more of a capacity to move through it, be with it, and maybe not build an altar to it so that more often than not, I move through whatever's happening now. I don't have to get in this frame of mind that it's always going to be exactly what's happening in this moment. Yeah, I'm here, but, you know, it keeps unfolding. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that sort of incremental work is nice because we... We get idealistic about it, and we want the big shebang, you know, where we go from being a suffering human being to no problems on the horizon, no problems past, no problems future. But it's more incremental, as you're describing, like just noticing that when we build an altar to our suffering, things get heavier. When we don't bother to do that, when we don't go there, it's more workable. So we're just beginning to intuit the freedom. like. Ajahn Chah said this at another point, you know, if you let go a little, you get a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, your problems are over. <laughs> and so this is what this is what we're discovering, you know, and you you know, we put our toe in and it feels okay. So we put our foot in, you know, and then eventually we're willing to go completely under and trust the opening process. But we can't just do it all at once. Nobody does it all at once. We do it incrementally. I think we have to end here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciating being here together again. And willing to, on the one hand, be inspired by these teachings and on the other hand, to have this great austerity of patience, you know, to do the exploration and to trust it's going to take as much time as it takes, but to be grateful that we have a path, this path of opening. And it's a way of taking care of ourselves and taking care of all beings. So thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. Nice to be here together. See everybody next Wednesday, maybe. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.